Do you feel like you're barely keeping your head above water? That no matter how hard you try, meaningful progress remains out of reach? Heather gets that. She battled an eating disorder for years before seeking help. Now in recovery, Heather is here to tell you that positive change is possible even when it doesn't feel that way. Join her as she shares openly about her struggles and small triumphs. Fair warning, though. Heather doesn't hold back. Her candid story may trigger some. But for those wanting honesty, hope, and healing, this is 1% Better with Heather. The information and stories shared on 1% Better are based on host Heather's personal experiences with eating disorders and mental health challenges. Heather is not a licensed doctor, therapist, dietitian, or other health professional. Her advice and opinions should not be taken as professional medical advice. Please consult your physician or a qualified health provider regarding any medical or health-related issues. 1% Better also contains descriptions of eating disorders that may be triggering for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Hey there, my little gaffers, and welcome to 1% Better with Heather. Today, I have a special guest, Ed Warrior Mom, as she's known on TikTok. For the next couple episodes, Ed Warrior Mom will share how she got pulled into this eating disorder health. No questions off limits. She will speak about her daughter and their experience with the eating disorder recovery system, how this disease affected her family. She will also be discussing her faith in a higher power and how that helped her get through this eating disorder hell. It takes a brave person to come onto a worldwide podcast and air your dirty laundry, so to speak. I applaud her for this. Now, without any further ado, here is Ed Boyer, mom. Hey there, my gaffers, and welcome to 1% Better with Heather. On today's episode, I have, by back by popular demand, Edie Warrior Mom is here with us. Hello. Hello, Heather. Thank you for having me. It's a joy to be back in the, in the hot seat. Well, I'm so glad you're back. And uh, let's just like dive right in, shall we? This is always a hot topic, and I'm always honest with my eating disorder and my treatment. I never went to a treatment center. I went to the hospital because that was the only place I could go because otherwise I was checking out. So, and not in a good way. <laughs> so I've never been to a facility, nor am I an American. I am Canadian. So everything's a little bit like, I can understand a lot of it. I understand what a treatment centers. I now have a very good grasp on the American medical system. <laughs> and not that anything's better in Canada or America. Everything's flawed, right? There's nothing that's going to be perfect. But what, if you mind sharing your thoughts on your experiences with treatment centers? Sure. So I would take a step back a little bit and just say, I've said it before, but when our daughter's outpatient team recommended a higher level care, we didn't know what a higher level of care meant. I didn't know such places existed. Um, and so I went into the whole process completely unknowledgeable. Um, and frankly, I didn't do a ton 
of investigation or research about different treatment facilities and um, their philosophies and those kinds of things, largely because in the area where we live, options are very, very limited. So it was like, insurance will pay for this one, so go here. Um, and fortunately, it was one of the top um, facilities that was recommended by her treatment team. Um, so there was some alignment there, but I just went into it completely um, unaware. And I would say it would not have been our plan A to put our 17 year old daughter in a medical facility for a long period of time. If we had thought that we had any other options, we would have chosen those options. Nobody likes the thought of that, um, but we really were at the place that we needed something that only a treatment facility could provide at the point where she was in her sickness. So I do think there's a lot of discourse around treatment centers, namely um, that there is a wide variety of approaches. There's a wide variety of styles, the type of facility, the kind of care that they provide, the types of supportive services that they build in around that core treatment experience. And, you know, I think those are all valid conversations to have, like what are the core standards of care for eating disorder treatment? And I think the whole field is learning a lot about that as we go. Um, but right now there's just a lot of disparity there. And the top, I think, thing that people would say about a treatment facility like the one my daughter went to is that it is expensive and it's exclusive. And what I mean by that is that not everybody has the means to receive that level of treatment, even if they are the sickest of the sick. And, you know, I think about that in a couple of different ways. Yes, it's expensive. Any kind of medical treatment is expensive. And we went through a period of time that we were like, is this necessary, right? Like this is a lot. It's a lot emotionally. It's a lot physically, just practically to do, but it is a lot of money. Um, and that was hard. That was a hard decision to make. Um, but I think that the conversation tends to be around, is it expensive for the sake of profit um, for the people who own the facilities? And are they passing that expense along unnecessarily to people who are paying for this service. And maybe I would say, I think the bottom line is important to most businesses, whether it's a medical hospital or, um, you know, a multi-million dollar business on Wall Street or whatever. The bottom line is important. But I think that I try to think about it like profit and care quality care don't have to be mutually exclusive, but it is important to really look into that and compare and contrast and make sure that, you know, what you're doing is 
what you can do financially and that, you know, you are getting the best support that you possibly can can get. But I would say the other side of that that I don't hear people talking about as much is one of the overarching problems with the treatment process is insurance companies. So, you know, that's how you're getting most of the care paid for is through your insurance. If you live in America, I guess I should qualify. And insurance companies don't always recognize eating disorders as necessary treatment. And so they don't cover it or they kick people out of treatment the day they're weight restored because they hit that bar and now I'm not going to pay anymore. I saw that time and time again when my daughter was in treatment, when somebody would all of a sudden they have to go home because insurance was cutting them off. And that's so unfortunate because what you and I both know is eating disorders are not weight disorders. Certainly there is some impact typically on weight, but being weight restored may just be the first step in the process of getting better. The other thing that happens is they may set a very stringent weight criteria for admission. So again, going back to what we know about eating disorders, someone in a bigger body can be struggling and be just as sick, if not sicker, than someone who is in a malnourished body. And I think we have a long way to go to make what the research says, what the reality of eating disorders say, match with the way the financial aspect of treatment kind of goes. And so that's the first thing is expense and exclusivity. And I think I, I would want anyone to be, have access to care. And the reality is some people don't, whether it's because of their insurance, because of eligibility criteria. Um, you know, if you have to pay out of pocket for eating disorder treatment, it's going to, you know, bankrupt your family, most likely. And that doesn't feel great, for sure. Well, I am on both sides of the coin here. So I will say this again, hospital feeding tube. I had two weeks to live. I was going to die. There was, I had to sign papers. I only thought existed in the movies. I was that critically ill that I got the um, scenario of kid uh, people coming out of camps in world war two. So malnourished. And what they learned from that was if they, fed them, they would have a heart attack and die. That's where I was. So I had to be in a hospital. I had to be watched. I had no electrolytes. I had like my kidneys were shutting down. I could go on and on and on and on. Was not good. Just put it that way. So I understand needing to go somewhere and, or a facility. I, I, cause you do need a team and you do need doctors and you need to, need to figure stuff out. What you just said, though, I've never heard before, is when they hit a certain weight, they kick them out, like weight restored. I, that is so ridiculous. And it's probably not, and I'll give benefit to the doubt that it's not the facility, it's the insurance company saying, like, you get to this weight, you're, you're cured. 
But in eating disorder recovery, you can be weight restored, and I'm not even kidding, and in a month and a half, when you are in a malnourished body and you start eating, it, your body is holding on to everything. So it doesn't take much to gain a significant amount of weight very, very quickly. I always call it fake weight because it's probably not going to mm -hmm. stay there, right? It's your body and your fluids and everything trying to, you know, work its way back to health, right? Like, Because now it's like freaking out. But then what's the care after? Like, now I'm just confused. Like, what's the care after that? Because you're not better. You're not better. You're way more messed up, let me tell you. Am I fully pinning it on the hospital or mm -hmm. a treatment prom? No, that's just biology. That's just your brain. You're just freaking out. So I guess that's where I have my issue is people put so much research into cancer and again, having sick kids, right? I know. And I know the stuff that comes with families and the counseling that comes with that. And it's just constant and with doctors and whatever. I just find these treatment centers, if that's the deal, okay, well, you've gained your weight, see a goodbye, you are putting a Band-Aid on a war wound at the end of the day. And you're just making this cycle worse. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. So, you know, insurance companies may have some influence over various parts of the process. It may not just be weight restoration, although I have heard that. It could be, you know, your weight restored and you've been completing all of your required meals and snacks and, you know, meeting these three benchmarks. And so now we're going to recommend that you immediately step down to PHP. Um, so there's a lot of nuance there to what is being discussed, but I would say insurance companies drive the conversation and the facilities are in the position of having to kind of argue about what the patient actually needs, but it is never going to be long enough. That's the bottom line. And to me, that comes down to what is the purpose of treatment, right? Is it supposed to cure you? Are you going in there thinking, I'm going to be there 12 weeks and I'm going to be cured? Or is it designed to be a stabilization process, um, teaching you skills and resources and giving you the best jump start for recovery that you and I both know may take years to get fully recovered or to the place where you feel like you're no longer being held hostage to eating disorder thoughts. And I think that's what the debate needs to be about. Like, what's the purpose? And then you can kind of align your thinking about what you need to do is that 15% of my overall recovery journey, is it worth investing that amount of money, resources, time, et cetera, in that or not? And those are the kinds of decisions that I think um, people have to just weigh the pros and cons and figure out what their path looks like. Yes. And we can both agree the system's broken. 
the system's broken here in Canada. I fell through so many cracks. It's not even funny. When I came out of the hospital after a month, I was supposed to go into a treatment plan. That didn't happen. I didn't see that treatment plan until February. I left the hospital in July. Let me tell you, recovery was not an, like recovery went out the window within two weeks because I, why? Right. I, 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 I'm honest about it. Right. I didn't know how to deal with this. No one explained anything to me while I was in there. No one told me this is why you're feeling or this is why you're thinking this. And this is why your body's doing. No one told me shit. They were just like, goodbye and good luck. And then. So again, like the system's broken everywhere. But what, what. Do, do they say though, like when you come out of a treatment center and maybe your treatment center, okay, they're coming out of here. They're going to go to X. Do they set up counseling for the whole family and you and this is, we're telling you like when you go into the treatment center, like, Hey, we're not here to like flip a switch and everything's going to be hunky dory. Mm -hmm. Do you understand that when you send your child there or does the pamphlet say, send them here. We are like the miracle treatment center and everyone recovers. I did not know what my expectations were going into treatment. Um, but I would say in our experience, certainly they touted their strategy and the comprehensive nature of what they had to offer, but they were almost brutally honest in parent education and communications about success rates, um, just with the disorder in general, about how we as parents were going to be a significant part of the solution long-term that they could only have them for so long, but we needed to learn as much as we possibly could and be equipped and ready to take over in the next phase of recovery. And that felt overwhelming, but I also very valued it, very much valued it. I um, felt like knowledge is power and having a plan is the most important part of it. So yes, the treatment process, it typically, I mentioned earlier, goes from most intensive to least intensive, the gold standard. Not everybody does all of this. Again, I mentioned insurance challenges, personal challenges, I don't wanna do it, whatever. But the gold standard is inpatient, residential, partial hospitalization, kind of the step down there. And then once you return to your home base, they want to continue working with you through intensive outpatient. In our situation, they had a virtual program for another eight weeks. Once she was back home, she was on her computer for four hours a day. She had a, a dietitian through that process. She had a therapist through that process. All the while, they were connecting to her outpatient team. And if she didn't have an outpatient team, that's a requirement for um, leaving is setting up who's my psychiatrist, who's my therapist, who's my dietitian. And if you didn't have one, they would help you find, find one. And so there is that interim time where she was actually seeing 
her outpatient team that in our case she had before she went to the facility, as well as this virtual intensive outpatient process. And then we transitioned to home care, which is where the parents came in um, to make sure that we are not giving our child the amount of responsibility around food and activities and those kinds of things that they had before they went in. Like there are rules around what can happen. I was responsible for preparing all meals and snacks, eating all meals and snacks with her. Um, and that's not punitive. It's that taking the choice out of the process, you know, limits overwhelm, but it also teaches them in a continued way to be flexible and not feel like they can have control over everything. Um, so there's a lot of learning that's involved there. And, you know, then, then you're kind of once that maybe four months is up, which really is quite a lengthy amount of time, but in the grand scheme of things, then you're sort of, then you're sort of on your own after that. But hopefully by that point in time, you've had enough practice and um, you're into the tools. the tools, right. To, to keep it and sustain it. Well, I will say, I like what you said right there, that when your daughter came home, you were in charge of doing the food and as an adult living with an eating disorder and a mother, no one was here taking care of me. Let me tell you it is. And I wish, I wish someone did. I, I really do. It was hell on earth to try to get up every morning, make yourself breakfast, mm -hmm. eat it <laughs> alone by yourself. You're only responsible. And listen, if you don't want to get better, you'll never get better. That that's mm -hmm. the truth. You, you will hold all the power. I say it, right? This is not, and I, we're talking about treatment center. So I'm not here to blame anyone or the hospital or whatever. Like I'm not here to do that, but it's hard getting up and being your own cheerleader every day, especially when you're an adult and you have stuff, you have life stuff, right? And not to take away from teenagers or whatever. I'm, what's going on in high school with them is their world and that is huge, what's going on. But when you have to pay bills every morning and I was lucky enough, I was off, I'm off work due to a disability. So I didn't have to take my ass to work every day and work there's people in my situation and you'd have to go do a whole job and try to do that. So having someone there with you just to take that, that fear out of preparing food and then having mm -hmm. someone sit with you. Cause I I'll be honest, even though I liked sitting by myself, I would have given anything for someone to crawl into my bed with me while I was crying and just be like, Heather, it's okay. Right. It, it's, it, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle. Yeah. And so giving them that responsibility and um, kind of authority over themselves is it's hard when they're older because they expect that immediately. But it is important. And, you know, once I was out of the phase of I'm going to prepare everything, then we transition to, OK, you can you take breakfast and lunch and the expectation is that we all eat dinner together regardless. And so we were in that stage for, well, I think we're kind of still in that stage. Um, but for a while, 
help help for her to kind of take the reins became plan out everything that you're going to have for breakfast and lunch every single day of the week, post it to the refrigerator so that there's no guesswork. There's no standing in front of the refrigerator with the doors open going, I don't know. No, you know, you wrote it down, right? You wrote it down. This is what you're going to have. Now, if you want to switch Thursday with Tuesday, whatever, whatever. Um, But that was the accountability for herself that was important. Um, So that's the first thing. If she ever started to struggle uh, in earnest again, like the first thing that we would do would be go back to meal planning every and posting it on the refrigerator and being accountable to that. So I do think those kinds of things that you learn are really, really helpful because they're in your brain now. So now I know what to do if this situation happens like this. Um, you know, the other thing, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to be the, I don't want the reputation to be that I'm the staunch supporter of or defender of treatment programs because I'm not, I just know my experience. And I will say that, you know, there, there can be this thought just like with addiction treatment that, you know, they're just going to, they make money when you come back again and again. So the, the interest is in, you know, if you come back, it's fine. Right. And there's probably some truth to that on some level, but I actually think that the providers that we came into contact with were always very, very clear and helpful in dispelling that um, down to just this this um, one little detail. And I'm sure this is a part of their standard. But when my daughter left, we were going to drive back home. She was done with the steps of the treatment process. And now we were going to go back home. Uh, her whole treatment team came down to the lobby. She had all her stuff, you know, and they said some really nice things to her, some really encouraging things. And then they said, I hope that I never, ever, ever see you again. That's the nicest thing anyone could ever say to you. Right. It is. Whether, you know, it felt genuine, felt heartfelt, maybe it wasn't, but I appreciate it nonetheless as a mom. So I give them credit for kind of taking that stance, not, if you're struggling, no, we're here. Yeah. I hope I never see you again. Yeah. No. And that's the best, best thing to say to somebody. Really it yeah. is. Right. So. Another thing that I hear a lot, um, I didn't really think about this honestly before we went into the process was that, you know, there's potential to that the treatment experience causes more trauma than you know, people had before they went into the process or that they're going to learn new behaviors from being in this group environment. And honestly, that's a real concern. And I think it is important to do your research on how facilities operate. Um, Do they restrain people if, you know, they feel like it's necessary? Um, What are their medication protocols? Um, And I'm I'm not talking antidepressants. I'm talking you know, the kinds of things that you see in the, in the movies when people need to be um, less or more compliant, like what are their, what are their 
um, philosophies because I think those are really, really important things to know going in that can have an effect on people. I think the flip side is that, you know, being in an environment with other people with eating disorders does build an important camaraderie with other people who get it, right? Like you just don't experience that in um, regular life to any great degree. I think most people with eating disorders feel very othered in their lives. They feel like, you know, what they experience and feel and think is different from other people. And that can be really isolating in and of itself. And so I think um, having an experience where you're around people who can motivate you in a very, very specific way is important. And our experience, at least, again, I can only speak from our experience, is that people who are trying to recover, even if they're very sick from an eating disorder, are not trying to spill their sickness on other people. They very much can view and do view, like, this is what I am doing. I wouldn't wish that on you, and I want you to get better. And so it almost felt so empowering of these young women to be in an environment where they were hyping each other up in ways that I frankly didn't expect. I mean, when our daughter first went to treatment, I remember us saying, you're going to make friends because that's how you're going to survive this experience. But we caution you not to get too attached to someone that, um, you know, may not be a good, I don't want to say influence, but a good thing for your life long term. And that really turned out to be not a concern in any way, shape or form in our experience. Um, our daughter says treatment friends are the best friends. And, um, you know, I do think for whatever period of time of your life, you do have some bonds with people who are kind of fight, trying to fight themselves out of the same trench that you're trying to fight yourself out of. Well, and I will, I will agree with points that, that you're making. Like I will agree. Yes. Uh, unless you have this eating disorder, I call it, you speak slick. If you don't speak slick, you trust. Nope. You'll never get it. And there is something comforting in talking to other people. I do agree. There's nothing. If you're sending your kid somewhere and your kid has an eating disorder or me, there's nothing I could tell someone with an eating disorder. That's going to give them some new ideas at all like we know them all and that's and i think sometimes though that's a parent wanting to not face reality i'll just mm -hmm. say it honestly they need to place the blame somewhere maybe they're feeling like they did this to their kid and i'm not saying that they did but there's guilt right there's parent guilt and oh my kid learned this from this person they never used to do this before and blah 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 but they did it's just sometimes your head's in the sand about it. And now it's when you have to put the mirror up to your face, sometimes you don't want to look, right? So you have to be yeah. very, very honest with yourself. With For sure. This. For sure. It is, it is the hardest decision that you'll ever make. And um, you'll, you know, you'll question your decisions about a lot of things along the way. 
and again, put one foot in front of the other and be diligent and do your research and trust the process and all of those things and realize that no one path is right for everybody. And that's, um, that's the honest truth in, in what we go through. The other, the other conversation that I sometimes think gets lost in the conversation about treatment because people are, you know, not as aware of what happens there is that, you know, eating disorder, people who have eating disorders often, I'm not saying everyone, often have comorbidities. Like we're not just talking about treating body image and um, restriction and malnourishment. That is huge. That is what's happening on the outside. But there's often depression, anxiety, trauma, OCD, all of these things that are really working together with the eating disorder in a very nefarious way. And so, you know, the, the nice thing about treatment is that at least the facility that we went to was equipped to manage all of those things together because you have access to a dietitian, you have access to a therapist, you have access to a psychiatrist, you have a medical doctor, all of those people are on your team and they're working with you every single day and they're working with each other, right? So they're talking about you, which, you know, you may like or not like, and making real time adjustments to help you in all of those different ways. And frankly, you could do that in an outpatient setting, but it would be really difficult in some areas where, you know, access to providers who have a specialty, not just knowledge of, but a specialty in eating disorders is really, really hard to come by. Um, and certainly they're not necessarily equipped to uh, provide that team approach to your situation. So I do, I would never have been able to achieve sort of that comprehensive nature of um, support for her outside of the treatment facility. Now, I don't think all treatment facilities have all of those kinds of services either, though. So that's where it comes down to what are the standards of care? Um, are there standards of care for eating disorder treatment? And how are we ensuring that um, people are getting the most benefit for the least cost in the most efficient way, but also with enough time to actually make a dent in the disorder that can be very, very complex and very, very challenging to treat. Well, I will say this. I do agree an eating disorder is a coping mechanism. I can peg where mine came from. I can tell you right now, I was in a workplace accident. I was in an explosion. I'd love to tell you about it, but I'm in a lawsuit. Mm. When, I'm, when I'm allowed to talk about it, I will. It's a great story. But from that came inner ear concussions, tinnitus, vertigo. So I was constantly like on the teacups at Disneyland on like 24 seven. So I was constantly getting ill and then add in PTSD and all that. That is where mine came from. I can peg it, mm. but for my, I'm like, no one else gets in an explosion. Like that's just me. Everyone has their, their, reason why this has come up and then you get on the hamster wheel of hell and you can't get off 
So it works for, you know, like you're coping for so bet. And then it envelop it develops into your world. That's it. Yeah. It envelops very, very quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. Yeah. And I do think that part of the therapeutic process that I never really thought about, honestly, was identifying and appreciating. It's hard to say that word about an eating disorder, but appreciating what purpose it serves for you. So you just articulated what purpose your eating disorder has served for you and being kind to yourself that it protected you from something. And that could be a good thing, but it also has so many bad things to it that it's not worth it, but we can learn other ways to step into that gap and protect ourselves in more healthy ways than that nasty old eating disorder ever could. Right. And so I do think that, you know, it, you can say all day long, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. It's, but it does serve a purpose for you. Your brain has created it to protect you and comfort you in some way. And that's kind of an amazing thing to think about in that way that, um, you know, our human design is such that it's always adapting to what's happening around us. So that's just kind of a geeky thing that I learned that I thought was really interesting to think about as we talk about what eating disorders are and how to, how to address them. Yeah, no. And, and I concur, right? Like this say as much as it, I almost got taken out very close. It did save me in some retrospect, right? And that's why I started this podcast so we could actually talk about what is underlining that. It's mental health, right? And sometimes people don't know what it is and that's what mm -hmm. a good therapist will uncover, right? And, sure. and sometimes you'll learn when you're like, me when I was in a facility and you're like, what is going on? I just got no help after, right? I, I hope, I hope there will be more facilities that actually have more of a guide that, that would be like my dream. I don't know how to start this action or anything, but I'm putting it out in the universe. So there has to be some sort of, even though Yes, eating disorders are complex. At the end of the day, there's a lot more in common than not. Mm -hmm. So I always talk about the 12-step program. It's a reason it's been around for 100 years for a reason. It works. I do believe there has to be something like that for the eating disorder. Yeah. Because sometimes heard... then, sorry, because then I yeah. feel then you're in your then you're going to negotiate with a terrorist. Well, that's not my kid. That's not what that. No, you're not listening. I have triggers. No, now you're making excuses. Mm -hmm. Go back to take all that out and get to the root of it. Yeah, I think it's really important to think about how to kind of mimic other things in the world of treatment that have worked really well and build off successes versus kind of starting everything from scratch. So I think that's an interesting thing to think about. I think for eating disorder treatment, um, you know, it's up against this big, hairy, audacious pr 
problem of the uh, success rate, the recovery rate for eating disorders is quite low. I try not to look at all of those statistics because I don't, I don't want to live there. I want to live in hope and optimism and what's happening today and those kinds of things. But I also think it's really, really important for people to understand that treatment center, no treatment center, all in recovery, whatever hospital, whatever it is that you do, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a one and done process. And, you know, I talked about this before, but having to go to treatment once is hard enough. Having to go to treatment a second time because you've relapsed is a really challenging thing. But our second time was so much easier than the first because we had that foundation. We knew a lot of things. She was working on different kinds of challenges the second time than she was the first time. And, you know, just because you struggle doesn't mean you have to struggle exactly the same. And learning and growing and evolving that way is, I think, important to think about what contributes to that and how to build from where you are and where you are today is going to be different than where you were a year ago. Um, you know, and the other thing that I think about a lot when I think about this mindset of, are we trying to cure it? Is it a one and done process is a little bit like if you find out that you have cancer, God forbid, um, you know, your doctor might identify chemotherapy as the treatment and you'll look at all the statistics and decide the benefits outweigh the challenges. And maybe this is what we need to do. Is there a guarantee that the cancer is going to be gone at the end of that chemotherapy treatment? Very rarely. Um, is there a guarantee that if it's successful during that round of treatment that the cancer won't come back down the line or it might come back in a different part of your body? No, there's no guarantee of that either. It doesn't mean that chemotherapy isn't the right thing that has to be done at that time to stabilize you, to buy some time, to figure out what to do next, and even to avoid dying. And even in the worst case scenarios, you know, that treatment helps you get a game plan together for how you're going to fight the next time. And yes, there may be some alternatives to chemotherapy that are right and work for some people. Um, you know, those are just the things that you're going to talk about with your doctor. You're going to talk about with your families and, I wholeheartedly agree that treatment um, in a facility isn't right for everyone, but I think it is the, the right answer for some. And so I want to make sure that as we talk about what's wrong with the system, that all of us who together know little bits and pieces of it, you know, from the hospital perspective and as an adult, I know from the parent perspective, other people know from a personal experience within a treatment system perspective, all of us have to be talking about how to make it better because eating disorders aren't going to go away. Unfortunately, I wish they did mental health. Unfortunately, the statistics are that more and more people are struggling with their mental health. So we're all 
a part of the problem or all a part of the solution. And that's what I really, really appreciate about these kinds of conversations is I don't think they're just talk. Like they are important and I think change is going to happen. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not the next day, but at some point, these kinds of conversations will affect change. And amen, right? Like I hope people hear our conversation and hear this, what's going on over here, because you, you touched on it earlier about having an eating disorder. No one with an eating disorder wants someone else to get an eating disorder. Like, no, like I, I, this, I want people to learn from me. I don't, don't be me. Don't do this because it's not a fun life to have. Let, let me tell you. Right. And I'm very blessed. I don't know why I'm here. I have no idea why I should not be. I fully understand that. I, I should be six feet under. And for some reason, my big mouth is still freaking going. So <laughs> hopefully this big mouth can do some good and people will listen. Like, listen to the people who have been through it. Listen to the people who have lived it, you know, and hopefully change will come. You build it, they will come. That's what I'm going with. Absolutely. And I think we're all just, we're all just on a path in life. And it takes something like this to step off that path and say, how do I use this? What is the purpose of this? You said, I don't know why I'm still here. You know, my daughter can say the same thing. A million other people could say the same thing. You have to do something with that feeling. And um, I'm glad that you are. Yeah, I like breathing. Kind of addicted to it. <laughs> but I've learned so like learned so much. And I just that's my goal. I just want, I don't know if you call it a guide or whatever, like, come on, my aunt, like you gotta. And I don't say I know everything because I don't. That's why I have this podcast and that's why I talk to people, right? So if you're bringing in other guides, then all we can do is become one bigger village. So I hope. Me too. I pray. Well, thanks for joining us today. Do you want to send off with your uh, social media handles? Sure. And before I actually sign off, I do have to say Heather thought this was a tattoo. It's my I necklace. Did. So if anybody else has been watching this thinking, yeah, she doesn't look like somebody who has a chest tattoo. It is just a necklace. Um, that said, my social media uh, on TikTok, I am Wendy with a K with dots in between all of the words and letters. And the label is Edie Warrior Mom. I talk about all things mental health, eating disorders. Um, I love on a lot of people, um, hopefully insightful and also a little funny. Um, although my kids probably would say more cringy than funny, but to each their own. Um, come join me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of 1% Better. To continue the conversation, head over to our website at www.1percentbetter.ca, where you can access more stories and resources. We'd also love it if you subscribed and left us a review on your favorite podcast platform. 
And remember, friends, progress takes patience, perspective, and sometimes a little help from people who get it. So be kind to yourself and others as we work to get 1% better every day. We'll see you back here next week.